following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, well, good morning again. I'd love if you've opened your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 17 through verse 24. Before I begin, I'd love to invite you to say with me, give thanks to God after the reading of God's word as just a humble recognition that God is gracious to us in the provision of his word. It is on his word that we stand. Our word, our, our services are saturated with God's word because we believe it is from the word we receive our life. And so you can say along with me, thanks be to God when I finish reading God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at any time of his call already uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of uncircumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourselves of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray by your spirit that you would illuminate our minds and open our ears and eyes to see and hear the beauty of Jesus in these words, and to know and be grateful for the calling on our lives as Christians, and help us to live in light of such calling. We pray and ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the normal diet of our preaching here is what we call expositional. It's book by book through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And last week, we just concluded our study in John's Gospel. And beginning next month in June, through the rest of summer, for 13 weeks, we'll be in the book of Psalms, looking at a cross-section of different kinds of Psalms and how it speaks to our own needs and emotions and life circumstances. But in between John and the Psalms, we're going to spend time in the word through a topical study. And I've not been clever enough to come up with a title for the topical series, but the aim of this series of the next three weeks is to help us understand what God wants you to do with your life. That's a super broad aim, but that's what we're going to go for. What does God want you to do with your life? What's your greater purpose? Why has he called you to himself as a Christian? Why did he save you? Why has he brought you here? What's he doing with you? What does he want with you? Just think about your life and the circumstance you find yourself in now. Whether you're married or single, with kids or no kids, you're in school or you're teaching, you have a career or you're just starting out, maybe you don't even have a job. Maybe you're looking for a new job. What does God want you to do in the circumstance that you are in at this moment? 
And how are you to think about the future for what God wants you to do and be in that moment? That's the aim of our series of the next three weeks. This morning, I'm going to be particularly talking about the issue of contentment and how to understand how God speaks to us and calls us in the place we're at and how we might not waste time considering what could be, what else we would like to be, but rather what God has called us to now. Next week, we'll look about how to steward that calling then well, about what it means to serve God more fully in the capacity of faithful stewards and God's calling. And then lastly, the third week, we'll talk about how to persevere, how to desire things that ultimately last, and to sow those seeds of perseverance and endurance now in our season of life, whatever it may be, so God is glorified in not only our life from start to finish, but in the entire work of our ministry that is felt through our children and children's children. And ultimately we see, as Paul would communicate, receiving a crown of life for his own work. So my goal then this morning then is to introduce the concept of calling. This morning's sermon, you may see in your worship guide, is entitled Contentment in Calling. And we've seen already three times in chapter 7 in our passage here that Paul mentions the calling of a Christian. Look in verse 17. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. God has called him to this. And in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he was mentioned again in verse 22. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord, and likewise he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. And so in verse 24, he concludes, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. So Paul is, is saying, Christians, you've been called by God. And he has a particular purpose for you in that calling. If he wanted you to be in a different position, he would have called you in that position. And so he's endeavoring to teach the Corinthian church to understand their current circumstances as part of their calling and as part of their work in obedience to God their faithfulness to God in the midst of their calling and their difficult circumstances. Just consider what else he's talked about. He's mentioned here issues of singleness in marriage. He's already said that those who desire to be married should at least consider remaining single because God uses singleness. It's a gift. And he, Paul, would even have them greatly consider singleness for the sake of the Lord. But he's also spoken to the husband or the wife whose spouse has deserted or is not a believer. And how should that circumstance be changed or affected by the gospel? Do you get to start over now that you're a Christian and your unbelieving spouse is not? And so do you leave? Should you walk away? What Paul says to the single, to the married, to the one married, to the unbelieving spouse even to the slave or to the Jew or Gentile, you don't have to try to change your circumstance to be faithful to God. Let each person, verse 17, he says, lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And whatever condition he was called, let him there remain with God. So I want to introduce to you this idea or this concept of calling that's really pivotal to our understanding of the will of God for our lives or for your life particularly. In the following messages, we're going to build on this concept or this idea of calling as it's laid out here in Scripture. Specifically, 
I, I want us to learn to integrate faith and life together more deeply so that the entire work of your life, the entire ministry and service to God is seen all together as worship. Does it make sense? That your faith is not separate from life, but is intermingled so deeply together that all of life is service to God. That all of it is worship, no matter what your circumstances are. Just think of the demographic of our own church, our small church, has such a diverse standing of people and backgrounds and circumstances. Many of you are single and desire to be married. Many of us are married and struggle to be faithful in what it means to be a husband and a wife. Add on that the complications of children and struggle to be faithful to what it means to be a father or a mother. Especially motherhood can be draining and discouraging as you face the the onslaught constantly, day in and day out, often without break for years of the constant need and service of your family. Usually a thankless job, except perhaps last week on Mother's Day. So whether it's motherhood or singleness or maybe your employment, having a job, not having a job, having a job you don't want, having coworkers you don't like, not having the freedom, stuck in a nine to five, wishing you made more money, wishing you had better perks or more benefits, wishing your boss was a little less annoying or demanding or your job was a little easier. Maybe it's ministry that you're thinking of. Friends, all of this, we understand, leads to the consideration of what God would have for us in any moment of our lives. There are spheres of our lives that are often untouched by the question of what God would have for us. We think in this part of our life, we will obey God. But in this part of our life, I'd rather listen to my own conscience. Here, I think I have a better idea and plan for my life. But God is right on these issues. And we confuse these. And even in the same sphere or realm, like romance or motherhood or in ministry, we often intermingle our own opinions with God's word. But the point is this, that all of life is God's. All of your life is God's. And therefore, should be rendered to him as worship, as service to God. One of the great qualities of the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the biblical doctrine of what's called the priesthood of all believers. And it has taken from this special class of clergy that existed in the Roman church at the time that stood as a mediator between God and man and said, if you'd like your sins to be absolved, you have to come and speak to a priest and confess them. You have to have the church sign off on all of your decisions. And only those who are in authority within the church has the right and the privilege to speak into your life, to tell you what God wants for you, to show you how to obey. Where the reformers are this time recovered this doctrine from the Bible of the priesthood of all believers and says, no, no, each of us is to be considered a priest in the service of the Lord. All of your life should be given into the service and worship of God. But when we think about those realms of our lives in which we often mingle our own opinions and the world's opinions with that of God's, are usually areas that breed discontentment when we're squeezed by them. Just now for a moment, consider what in your life you'd like to change. If you're single, at your work, 
in your desire for ministry, relationships with your neighbors or your family. There's a temptation to be discontent with what God has called us to, discontent with our current life, and at the heart of discontentment is really a desire to change our circumstances, right? Either we desire to change our circumstances because we think we are entitled to better circumstances than we currently have, or we would love to be happier than we currently are. And we think with a change of circumstance, we would enjoy our lives better. All of us, I think, I trust, if you're human, have experienced discontentment, even on your best of days. But if God has purchased the life of a Christian by the blood of Jesus, then every area of that Christian's life must be given over to God as service and worship, even those areas of our lives we are currently unhappy with. You're tracking. Single people, people who don't like their jobs, people who find difficulty in their family or certain relationships. God has called you to be faithful in this season. Now, there's another ditch, of course, we could fall in. Discontentment on one side, but complacency on the other. And I won't say much about complacency, but if discontentment is wanting something to change because it's uncomfortable or difficult, complacency is not wanting something to change because you're comfortable with it. If God were to call you to something else, you'd be hesitant to obey. You actually have a pretty good job. You kind of like your coworkers. You're paid pretty well. You've got good insurance and benefits, and things are going pretty well at home, too. And on the, the community front, you've really made lots of friends, but that nagging suspicion that God may be calling you to go serve overseas, you're not so happy about. So discontentment is one. Complacency is another. We can fall victim to both. But for our purposes, we'll spend most of our time dealing with contentment, as, as Paul does, I think, here in calling. So that main idea, the thrust this morning, is that all of life is God's. And because God has purchased us with a price, namely the blood of Jesus, all of our life should be rendered to him as worship and service to God, even the parts of our lives that we are unhappy with, even the parts of our lives that are difficult, that are burdensome, even the suffering and persecution that Christians may endure. Just, again, look in the passage we've read. He speaks really of two major classes of people, the religious and the slave or the servant. He says his rule in all of the churches, the teaching that he expects all Christians, not just in the churches he planted, but in all who would come to hear his word, was to remain in the calling that God has assigned to him. And he speaks to the circumcised, the religious. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the times of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And again, he speaks of that of the slave. Were you a bondservant, verse 21, when you were called? Don't be concerned about this. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is indeed a free man in the Lord. And likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. So he's speaking to sort of two clear distinctions between people within a community that would often breed discontentment and disunity among the body. Jew or Gentile, slave or free. These were, these were clear distinctions among the time. And if you were a slave, it is easy to understand why you would become discontent now that you've become a Christian, wondering why God in the gospel has not made a way for your freedom. Especially if you have a harsh master, a difficult one, who's maybe not as gracious or even an unbelieving master. Or if you're a Gentile, desiring to be more consistent with what you read in scriptures and so... You hear others teaching you wrongly, but you hear others speak of how you might need to conform yourself to the teaching of scriptures, like being circumcised or taking 
certain dietary restrictions, or even the Jews who think, oh no, because there is no longer any circumcisions which counts for anything, should I try to undo the marks of my covenant relationship with God as a Jew? Well, Paul here is very clear to both classes and really to all sorts of circumstances, to the widow, to the one who's married to an unbelieving spouse, to those who are single. No, God has called you in a particular season of life and desires for you to use that season for his good and his glory. So in Paul's argument here, in chapter 7, is aiming really, look in verse 23, to correct the idolatry of serving men. He says, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. And not just the expectations and the teaching of others, but even your own desires and expectations you place on yourself. Do not become slaves to which you think you want. And exchange that for what God has clearly called you to do in your circumstance. He's correcting the idolatry of serving men. And notice the argument that he makes here. Because you belong to Christ, it says in verse 23. Because you belong to Christ, having been bought with a price, that is the blood of Jesus who dies to redeem you from sin and make you his own. He's teaching that Christians then must do away with the attitude or the mindset that would subject their lives to the kinds of values and ideas in the surrounding culture which will inevitably lead them to reject or dismiss anything that seems beneath them as a Christian. Anything that's small or degrading to their sense of self-worth or identity. And this is, the, this is the key. The identity of these Christians is not to be fixed in their circumcision or uncircumcision. And their status as married or not married as married to unbeliever or to married to believer, to slave or free. Their identity as a Christian is to be rooted in Christ significantly, the calling to be in Christ. So we have to do away with the attitude, Paul says, that would lead us to embrace the kind of self-idolatry that would say, my circumstance is not what I'd like, therefore, I deserve better. I should work to change it. The subtle idolatry, the current underneath of that, is that God does not have a good plan for me. And it's up to me to make for myself the kind of life I desire. Now, Paul says, you have to do away with that kind of attitude. Instead, hear this, all personal thoughts of identity, of life, and even of status must necessarily be rooted in our calling as Christians. That's the word he uses, calling as Christians. All personal thoughts of identity, life, and status must be rooted in our calling as Christians. And what does this mean practically? This means that when we come to see the gospel, come to understand and believe the gospel, we see it not as a key that's meant to unlock the door of upward social mobility. That if you're from the bottom, the gospel is a key that unlocks the door to climb to the top of the ladder. Or to the key that unlocks the door to your best life kind of prosperity. That's not promised or guaranteed to you in the gospel. And to use the gospel as a means to climb the social ladder, to receive some kind of upward mobility, or to, to enact promises for yourself like prosperity, and health, wealth, and happiness is a misuse of the gospel. It's an abuse of the gospel. In fact, it's antithetical to the gospel itself. It is not Christian. The gospel is not a key to unlock the door of upward social mobility or your best life prosperity, but as a transformative reality. It is a reality and a tool that is to reshape your understanding of the purpose to which you are called regardless of the social standing or status in which you are called. It is to see your life as worship and service to God. That's what the gospel is meant to do, to transform you from a sinner to a saint so that you can live the life that God has assigned, whatever it may be, in service to God and his glory. 
It doesn't mean your life doesn't change or there's no place for godly ambition. But here we see the idolatry undercurring, uh, under, underpinning the, the desire to change your circumstances and to use or misuse the gospel as a means to achieve it. So the key to understanding Paul's vision then of the Christian life is his understanding of calling. And there's two things about calling to understand. First, that your calling here is a reality. You have been called. If you're a Christian, you have been called. That means summons. Has anyone received a summons in the mail before? Jury duty? What happens if you don't show up for jury duty when you get one of those letters? They'll come find you. You get in trouble. God forbid any of you have gotten subpoena for court before. If you don't show up for court when you've been subpoenaed, you get in more trouble. The calling of the Christian life is much like a summons to follow Christ. So you've been called to be a part of God's family through Jesus who has made you righteous by giving you his own righteousness. And that calling then is a reality you are meant to live in. It's not a goal to which you aspire. Does that make sense? It's a reality. It's a here and now. Now, you're not perfected, you're not sinless, but you, as a point of reality, are called, are a son or a daughter of Jesus or of God through Christ. Your calling is a reality. So Paul says the first part of understanding your life as a Christian to figuring out what God wants you to do and how you're to think about your life around you is to understand first and foremost that you have a new reality by which to see your life. Your calling is a reality. The second, though, and this is unique, I think, is that your calling is also an assignment. You've been generally called. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, you've been called saints by God. But there is an assignment there in verse 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. So there is an assignment, a a task or a job or a purpose given to you as he called you and made you his own. Does that make sense? So it's a reality. Your life has been transformed. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus. You now are a disciple called, summoned to follow him and whatever it may be. And you've been given now a job, an assignment in that calling. This is important to understand because it gives us an intentionality to our lives. Most of us just think of the Christian life as the first part, a reality. I'm saved by grace through faith, praise God. Now I could go and just live my life. No. You have an assignment as a Christian. You're called both to be a saint and to live as a saint in a particular place and time. That is your assignment. So Paul says that the Lord has assigned to each of you a particular manifestation or a particular expression of that general calling of salvation. You're saved, and you've been placed in a particular place and time to work out, to live out that calling. There's an implication to this, right? Not only that you are to be intentional then with how you live, but also that every Christian is called first and foremost to faithfulness to Christ in all matters of life. It it means that the Christian life does not leave any stone unturned. It's attributed to Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the life that is not given over to Christ in every area is not one who is faithful to the calling of the gospel. Every Christian is called to faithfulness to Christ in all areas, in all matters, in all realms, in all spheres of life, to every corner and every square inch, no matter the circumstances. So if you're here this morning and you're in a circumstance that you don't particularly like, and if the Lord were to give you some semblance of sovereignty over it, you would change, you're still to be faithful in that circumstance. You should be intentional in that circumstance. 
discontentment comes when we view that circumstance as not a good gift from the Lord, not as a good, wise, and righteous calling of God, but of something that is a burden, that is unrighteous. So that's an important implication of this idea of calling, both as a reality and assignment, that you are intentionally to live all of your life and faithfulness to Christ, no matter the difficult circumstances you may find yourself in. Because, friends, no circumstances, no position in life, Jew, Greek, slave, free, married, not married, no position or circumstance in life, we learn, is more suitable to faithfulness than any other. There is no secular and sacred divide in your life or in this world when it comes to the idea of calling. All tasks, however mundane, however difficult, bear God's approval when performed in faith. The reformer Martin Luther speaks like this. He says it, is, it looks like a small thing when a maid, like a, a mother, cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, even such a small work must be praised as a service of God, far surpassing the holiness and aestheticism of all monks and nuns. I like that. Maybe we should have said that to our moms last week. Mom, your righteous service of your family is more holy than all the works of any priests, monks, or nuns ever. It matters just as much to God. He says again, if you ask an insignificant maid service why she scours a dish or washes dishes or milks the cow, she can say, I know the thing that I do pleases God, for I have God's word and commandment. God does not look at the insignificance of the acts, but at the heart that serves him in such little things. And so all the tasks of life lived in service to God under the calling to which he has called you bears God's approval. He approves of them, even the small mundane things like milking cows or washing dishes or changing diapers or typing in a spreadsheet or sitting in traffic. All the things about your life you would love to change or that you are discontented with even those small moments matter to God, and they bear God's approval. Another reformer, Calvin, goes further. Not only do our tasks bear God's approval, but it is the Lord himself who assigns to each of us our calling. And so because he assigns your calling, he says, Bobby, this is your job as a Christian. I've called you to do this. This is your calling, Liz. This is your calling, because God is the one who assigns the calling, then the living out and the performance of that calling is a direct service to him. Does that make sense? If I've asked you to do a task for me, you serve me by doing it. If God assigns the task to you, you directly serve him by doing it. And that's the whole point here of Paul's words. He says, the Lord has assigned to you a task. He's called you to himself and it's assigned to you a particular purpose in that calling. Single, free, slave, Jew, whatever it may be. You are called, and so in the fulfillment and faithfulness of that calling, you not only do what is asked of you, but you render direct service and worship to God who assigned that task to you. And that should be the desire of every Christian, to honor and serve the Lord himself. He speaks later of, of slaves to work as unto the Lord, that he would render service to their master, even the harsh masters, as if he was working in a slave for God himself. It is the Lord himself who assigns each of us our calling, so we are to be seen more directly as serving him. Or in other words, our faithfulness in our calling to God functions as real worship. Worship is not just the songs we sing or the things we do here in the hour, two hours we gather on Sundays, but it is all the work you render to God in life. Do you see now how your circumcision and uncircumcision, your singleness, your non-singleness, your slave, or your freedom does not count for anything before God, but only your service to God in the midst of those circumstances? That's what he's called you to? 
So what does Paul do with the Christian's calling here in chapter 7? Well, he takes what is general, that is the calling to believe God, to love Christ, to obey the gospel, and then he particularizes it. He makes it specific to your context or the context of the reader's lives. These were live issues for them, and I think you can think of the particular live issues in your life that are begging to be subjected to the will of God. In your singleness, in your motherhood, in your employment or lack thereof, you're wondering, what is God up to? What does he want me to do? We can't tell the future. We don't have perfect vision when it comes to discerning God's will. But what we can know is that whatever the circumstance you find yourself in now, you are called to be faithful. And there you are called to remain. The attitude which grasps at change because you are either entitled to it or you think you have a better plan for your life is the kind of self-idolatry that Paul here repudiates. Again, there is room for us to desire change. We should desire marriage. We should desire a job which gives us freedom and flexibility to be home and time for dinner for our families. We should desire many good and great things, but in the absence of those things, discontentment will lead us to spurn the calling of God in our particular circumstances now. And that is when we become bondservants to men, even ourselves. So what then is our response? What should we take from Paul's words? How should we think of the many moments of our lives as owing to a particular calling to which God has assigned to us? How might we, like Paul suggests, render more faithful service to him in those circumstances that we find less than ideal? I'm going to quickly give you four things. First, you must accept as from the Lord all things in your life. And I, I mean all things, except as from the Lord, all things. Now, I, I know it's a can of worms, but because the Lord is sovereign, all things that happen, happen according to the purpose and will of God. The good and the bad. Sovereign even over the sinful decisions you and others make that perhaps lead to a less than ideal circumstances. Maybe you're struggling because of somebody else's sin. Well, the Lord is sovereign even over that moment. And so you must, as the slave, accept from the Lord the place you are in, the circumstance you find yourself. And you are to accept from the Lord what he has given and visited upon you in both submission and authority. Let us not be so quick to remove ourselves under the hand of God because it is in that moment and it is often in that season where your faith is more refined and more tested and purified. If it is under the test of God where your faith is refined and strengthened, would you not then want to wait until the Lord has done what he is meant to do instead of trying to circumvent the timing and purposes of God by removing it? We tend to think of the difficult circumstances of our lives as holding our hand to a hot plate. And the best way to stop from burning our hands is to remove it. And so we think singleness, this job, this unbelieving spouse, as our hands being held to the fire. And we should just move our hand. This is, this is too difficult for us to bear. But what we're not understanding is that God is actually refining us in that moment. And if we come to understand that we are not actually consumed by such a fire, but refined by it, friends, it would be my suggestion to you to tarry a little longer under the heavy hand of God. Now, you are not to do this alone, but God has placed you in community, if you are a Christian, has placed you in community to bear the burden with one another. So the burden of singleness, if it can be considered that, is not to be borne alone. The burden of a difficult relationship or parenthood, of marriage, of ministry, whatever circumstance it is, is not to be ever be born alone, but in community. But still we are to accept as from the Lord all things in submission and in humility. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's beautiful truths there. One, God cares for you even when you are under the mighty hand of God. I've spoken much about reformers. I don't normally mention too many and speak too candidly about theology, but if you have a low view of the sovereignty of God, I think the Puritans would call every trial a double trial. Because not only do you have the thing that's going on in your life, but now you have a God who can't control it. But when we think of God in his sovereignty ordains all things and we are now under the heavy hand of God, we know that he trusts, he, he loves us and we can trust him. So a high view of the sovereignty of God actually sweetens the discipline of the Lord rather than makes it taste sour. Hebrews 13 is great for that, by the way. Humble yourselves in the right hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. That is, he has a timing and a purpose for the hand of visitation, for the discipline, or for the difficulty or the circumstances. Whatever it may be, he has a timing and a plan for it. You may not know it, but at the proper time, he will exalt you as you humble yourselves under it. So accept as from the Lord the good and gracious gift of, insert the blank, your discontentment. Accept us from the Lord all things. Secondly, not only accept from the Lord all things, but lean into the things he has given you. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, I don't have to like it, but I will be here. That's not really the way Christian life works. You don't get to fold your hands, sit in the back, and wait for your time to be over. This isn't time out. No, you lean in to the circumstances that you find yourself in. Were you called? Well, that's where you should remain. You don't simply accept that calling, but you lean into it. He says to avail yourself of the opportunity and make use of it when he speaks about the freedom. This is a specific detail there of the Roman world. Slaves could not refuse what's called manumission. If a Master wanted to free a slave, a slave couldn't say, no, thank you. They had to be free. And so Paul here recognizes that there could be an unavoidable change in a person's life. God called them a slave, but their masters just set them free. So he says, make use of it. Avail yourself of the opportunity. That is, lean into what God has given you, slave or free, Jew or Greek, married or single, Whatever it may be, lean in and make use of it. Leverage it for the sake of the gospel. See to it that the gift God has given you, even in the trying circumstances, are not in vain. There are many freedoms and advantages to difficult circumstances. Lean into it. We'll speak a little bit more about what that looks like in next week's sermon. Third, Learn contentment. Learn contentment. Go to Philippians chapter 4. You can keep your thumb there in 1 Corinthians if you'd like. We'll be back there in just a minute. Philippians chapter 4. Paul, he's writing from, from jail, by the way. And he's writing to the Philippians who have sent him a gift. They've sent him gifts before. And he's, he's so grateful for them and this gift that he's received while he's in prison. And so he says, I rejoice, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to pleasing God, and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. But Paul here is, is literally speaking of the secret of contentment. And notice where he places this. He is not contented in receiving the gifts the Philippians have sent, nor is he simply contented by the spending of time. He is grateful in whatever circumstances he finds himself in. Why? Because he says here in verse 19, my God will supply every need. The source of contentment does not come from the circumstances, but from he who sustains us in those circumstances. Friends, we are to learn contentment in those circumstances you find yourself in, not through them, but through God in the midst of them. We have come to receive the blessing of God supplied through many means. The Philippians here have supplied the needs of Paul through the Philippians, through giving. In other many ways, Paul has received the blessing of God, but it is God to whom he gives credit, even as he gives thanks to God or for, for the Philippians. So one of the things we have to learn to do is that when we understand this particular idea of calling is to lean in and to learn contentment. Knowing that God has assigned your circumstances means that you are to learn to be okay with it. It's a dangerous thing to be discontent with what the Lord has given you. Lastly, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Lastly, remain with God. He remains with you. You are to accept as from the Lord all things. Lean into your circumstances and your assignment. Learn contentment in the midst of your circumstances. Fourth, remain with God who remains with you. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain. And notice he adds, with God. This is the true comfort of the whole endeavor, I think that you are not simply left to make the best use of your time and the resources he's given you. No, he says, let him remain with God. That's beautiful because it means in your circumstance, which you would like to change had you been given the ability to do it, God is with you. He remains with you as you remain with him. In fact, he is the one who keeps you faithful in the midst of your circumstance. So it is God who has called you and God who keeps you and helps you to persevere in those things. So we are lastly to remain with God. And it is he who remains with us. We find our joy and our pleasure in whatever circumstance. We have learned the secret of being content with much or with nothing. In sickness and in health, in poverty or prosperity, abandoned, or in community, because God is with us. That's the hallmark of the Christian faith. And that's what it means to be called. To be called not into an island to yourself, or even a community drawn off from the rest of society, but called into a real relationship with God through Christ. It is Jesus who has taken on the form of a man and has suffered the sins and the wrath of God for us, so that your lives might be redeemed. And it is he who has assigned to you the task of disciple, to be faithful in whatever circumstance you're in. So whatever it may be, and whatever it may become, you are called to be faithful as a steward of God's calling. There you are to remain with God. Draw comfort from the fact that God remains with you. And the promise of Matthew 28, after Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded, he says, and lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Christ is always with us. How? By the sinning of the Spirit, who dwells within believers to strengthen and empower them to be faithful in these circumstances. Could Paul have been faithful in prison as he awaited his death? Not without the Spirit. Could the Corinthians 
bear with an unbelieving spouse who rejects is it on the verge of abandoning them, not without the Spirit? Could any of us withstand difficult trials or circumstances or the, the loneliness or singleness which may be crushing at times or the hurt of others or the abandonment by, by friends, not without the Spirit? The point here, remember, is that God has bought you with a price. The price with which he paid was the blood of Jesus. So because he purchased you, your life is his. And he has called you and given you a task to honor and glorify Christ in whatever those circumstances may be. We must remain with God then because he remains with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and there's so much more to be said. Many questions, I suspect, left unanswered. So we just ask, God, that you would, you would give us space to, to meditate on this, to consider our own calling, to think about what it means to be faithful in this season of life, in our singleness or in our marriage or at our job or in our school or in our neighborhoods or communities or to be faithful in the difficult raising of children, in ministry. God, you, you know our, our, our difficulties. You know the, the proneness of our hearts to wander. So I simply ask, God, that you give us opportunity to speak with one another and pray with one another for what this looks like, of how to be content in our calling. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus who has called us to himself and for whose cause we work. In Jesus' name. But in the All sermons are released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, visit us at foundationfxbg.com. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other, the soul is satisfied in Him. A summer flies, we fade away.